morning, Veritas. How are we doing today? Doing well. Love it. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna just jump right in. We got a we got a packed one today. So, gonna start with a question for you. Have you ever been overwhelmed? Like, have you ever felt stressed? Pretty simple answer. The answer is yes. You have. It was awesome. 9:30. There was like a five-year-old girl up here who's like, yes. I'm like, yeah. We all feel it, girl. And I'm telling you, the Howell household has felt it these last couple weeks, okay? Uh, I'm going to back up. A few weeks ago, our two-year-old learns how to take his diaper off. That's overwhelming, you know, when you start talking poop on the curtains during nap time. Not fun. But then it gets better, okay? Back-to-back weeks, sick kids. Stomach bug rolls through. And you always think like, oh, thank God, only the kids got it. And then the parents get it. And it's like, oh, no. And Ellie and I were talking. I was like, gosh, I miss the day that when we would take a sick day, we could just like go into our parents' bed and like throw SpongeBob on the TV, you know, watch cartoons. All the meals are taken care of. You know, the 7-Up just ends up somehow magically in your hand. You don't have to think about it. But when you're an adult, life keeps happening. Like, you got to keep the kids alive. You got to keep up with work. You got to finish your homework. Like, it's stressful. But you take sick kids out of the equation, we know what it's like to be overwhelmed. We know what it's like to be stressed because all you really have to do is turn the TV on. Right? Look at the news. War in Ukraine. A shooting in our city? I'm stressed already. When you talk about gas prices, I'm like, man, why has it got to cost 75 bucks to fill up a minivan? You know? It's stressful. And then you plan on coming to church on a Sunday morning and you're an introvert and you're like, a room full of extroverts? That's stressful. Like, sitting and listening to Jordan talk energetically for 35 minutes? That's stressful. Wow! But it's not just happening outside of us. It's not just out there. We stress ourselves out, don't we? We cram our schedules full. Our to-do lists are unending. Like the college student who's like, hey, finals are coming up in four weeks, but I have three projects to finish. I'm doing my internship. I'm applying for jobs this summer. And, you know, still have to maintain relationships with friends. And, ugh. I'm just stressed. And then it's parents who have 50-hour work weeks, if not more, and you're taking the kids to school. You're picking them up from school. You're taking them to sports practice or helping them practice their instrument. And then they go to sleep, and you're like, oh, my gosh, the cars need an oil change. Taxes are due. By the way, friendly reminder, taxes are due soon, okay? Uh, I talked to a friend just this weekend who... He's like, hey, you got a haircut. I'm like, yeah. He's, I was like, you haven't had a haircut. He's like, yeah, I haven't had time. Like, that's just the reality. We don't have time for haircuts. We get stressed out even planning family vacations. Like, this thing that's supposed to be so fun is like, oh, just planning a week away of fun is stressful. But is this starting to bleed into your Christianity? Or if I asked it this way, has following Jesus ever stressed you out? I think the answer is yes. 
And the reason I know that is because if you're stressed out over what you're going to have for supper, you're probably stressed out when it comes to following the Savior of the universe. The way we do one thing bleeds into the way we do everything. And I also know this because I sit across from people pretty consistently and I ask them some pretty simple questions to just try and understand how they're doing in their faith. What's God been teaching you in his word? How's your prayer life been lately? Who's God been placing in your path to share the gospel with? And almost instantly, like even as you sit in your seat right now and begin to answer those questions, how's your time in the word? How's time in prayer? Who have you been sharing the gospel with? What wells up within most people is this anxious response. Oh, I should be doing better. I'm not, I'm not where I want to be. I'm not doing enough. I could be doing more. And as we've spent the last several weeks in the closing chapters of Hebrews, it's pretty easy to begin to feel overwhelmed. Hebrews 11, you look at the heroes of the faith. Look at these amazing men and women of God. Look at how they've persevered. When life was hard and they radically obeyed Jesus to the point of death, look at them. And then Hebrews 12, in light of that, be like them. Finish the race. Run with perseverance. Look to Jesus. Set aside your sin. Hebrews 12 continues. Strive to be at peace with everybody. Get rid of that root of bitterness in your life. Have a grateful heart. Offer to God acceptable worship. And then we get into Hebrews 13, and it's just all practicality. Show hospitality. Flee from sexual immorality. Keep your life free from the love of money. Submit to your leaders. Give praise to God. Do good. Share. And we're just sitting underneath it, and we're like, wow. That is a lot. And if you're anything like me, your sin feels like a -a whack-a-mole. Right? You're like, show hospitality, check until next week, and then I'll start worrying about something else. But we get overwhelmed as we just sit under the commands of God, and we start to think, how am I going to do this? But the problem is, though we know the right answer, when we begin to feel this in our hearts, this is a sign that we are prone to become just like this first century audience of Jewish Christians who at worst were quitting Jesus. They looked at the overwhelming reality of what it took to follow Jesus and they said, no thanks, can't do it anymore. It's too much for me. Or at best, we become like them and becoming a group of Christ followers that have abandoned intimacy with Jesus in the name of religious activity. Rather than giving God our heart and saying, here I am. God, I want to be close to you. We say, here's my religious behavior. I'm going to process this behavior modification under the name of Christianity, and that's going to have to do for now. But the good news is, you guys, God knows this about us. He's not surprised. He's not surprised that you feel stressed and overwhelmed by your sin and your inability to measure up, that's exactly why he has given us this text today. And as we've talked in Hebrews, the tagline of our series is motivation for faithfulness. 
And if we want to be a faithful group of followers of Jesus, we need a motivation check. And that's where we're going to go today. You can open up your Bibles. Hebrews 13. Last week of Hebrews, anybody stuck about that? Yeah, you can say amen to that. That's cool. Uh, Week 28, here we are. Uh, We're going to start in verse 20, okay? And what we're going to see as we just walk through this text when it comes to our faithfulness is we're going to figure out why. We're going to start with why should we be faithful? And from there we're going to go to, okay, how do we become faithful? And then we're going to close and we're going to look at what does faithfulness actually look like? Okay, so how do we become, why do we become, what do we do? Here we go. Verse 20. Why should we be faithful? Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. Pausing for an amen. Good answer. The great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. We're just going to stop right there. Why should we be faithful? Are you kidding me? Look at who this God is. This amazing prayer that the author puts before us starts with looking at God's character. And it's pretty easy to sit under the weight of all these commands like this original audience did and forget that the first three-fourths of Hebrews is all about how Jesus is better. Right? They've been focused on the commands of faithfulness and perhaps they have forgotten that the first ten chapters were all about how Jesus is better. Laying this firm foundation. It's like, look at who Jesus is. These descriptors, the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. I'm reminded of Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus is the better priest. We saw that already in Hebrews, right? The priests of old would come. And they would act as an intercessor between God and man. They would bring an animal. They would offer up a sacrifice. And momentarily, for a short season, God would say, okay, you have peace. That's an acceptable sacrifice. But the problem is, they'd have to keep coming back. And these priests were simply men. Sinful men who themselves could not offer up their own blood. They had to bring an animal. Jesus is the better priest. He becomes the spotless lamb of God. He is the sacrifice. He sacrifices himself, and unlike any other priest that we have ever known, he's not dead. Yeah, he's alive. We serve a risen king. We can be excited about that. We don't have to wait for Easter to celebrate that we serve a living God. And his death and resurrection have made a way for us to have peace with God. His death shows that our sin is covered. And his life shows that we are made new. We are now at peace with God through Jesus Christ, our better priest. And he goes on to say that Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. 
as we already saw in Hebrews, Jesus is the better Moses. Right? God was kind enough to look at a rebellious people of Israel and to say, you need a shepherd. He gave him Moses, who was a devout man seeking to follow God and to lead his people out of captivity from Egypt. But far greater than Moses, God has given us Jesus Christ. We're not just led out of the oppressive yoke of slavery to a nation. We're led out of the oppressive yoke of slavery to sin, Satan, and death. In Jesus' death and resurrection, he's saying, hey, you are now set free. I am the great shepherd who has led you out. And I think it's worth pausing for a moment and just speaking to you, Veritas. Jesus is the chief shepherd here at Veritas, okay? He is the head of the church. And though we have an amazing team of elders, and though I look at our pastoral team and I would say, I trust them to shepherd my soul, they are sheep just like you. We are all sheep in need of a shepherd. And though it is a worthy thing to say, wow, I want a pastoral team that knows me, loves me, cares for me, and is seeking to protect me, the reality is you're also being led by sheep in need of a shepherd. And the best pastor on the face of the earth will ultimately let you down which is exactly why you need the chief shepherd. You need Jesus who knows you perfectly, loves you perfectly, and he will never fail you. That is who we have as our great shepherd. But you know what it means to have Jesus as our great shepherd? What does that make us? Sheep. And I don't know what you know about sheep. You probably read a couple nursery rhymes. You think they're the cute little white fluffy animals that come wagging back to you. That's not sheep, okay? One commentator puts it this way. Sheep are the most helpless of creatures. They have no wisdom and they have no weapons. In other words, we're dumb and we're defenseless. Shooting you straight. So the Bible says we are. We're sheep. We're dumb and we're defenseless. We're prone to go astray. We're prone to leave the God we love. We're prone to pursue our own desires. And when we get out in the open, we can't even save ourselves. We're open to attack. We're in desperate need of a protector, a provider, a good shepherd. And praise be to God, John 10, Jesus says, I'm the great shepherd. I am the great shepherd. I am not like the hired hand who comes and does his job, but when the wolves come to attack, I leave because it's hard. I don't leave the sheep just to be attacked. No, here's what I do. I am the great shepherd. I lay my life down for my sheep. And he did that. He died to protect you and provide for you. And now he lives to protect you and to provide for you. He remains the great shepherd of the flock. And because he laid his life down for us, we see that this is the blood of the eternal covenant. 
Jesus ushers in the better covenant. Talking to a group of Jewish Christians who are operating under old covenant mindsets of working harder and doing more and trying to appease God by their behavior. Jesus is saying, no, you don't understand. My sacrifice was once for all. You don't have to keep coming back to me with your try harder mindset. My sacrifice was once and for all. This is the eternal covenant. You don't have to keep coming back because I've already paid the price for you. This is not temporary. This is forever. This is the covenant that Jesus ushers in. And so before we even know what the author is praying, we stop and we say, who's he praying to? He's praying to the God who saves. That is our motivation for faithfulness. We serve a God that saves. But then the question is, what is he praying for? And we have to keep reading. Verse 21. May this God equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So why be faithful? God saves. How to be faithful? God strengthens. Do you see that in the text? That God himself is actually the one working within you to bring about obedience? In John 16, Jesus tells his disciples this. He says, It is to your advantage that I go. Place yourself in the shoes of the disciples. You've been walking alongside this God-man who has been speaking countless words of wisdom, performing miracles all around you, perfectly guiding and leading you as a great shepherd would. And he looks you in the face and he says, it's actually better that I'm going to leave. I don't know about you, but I would be losing my mind. I would say, no, Jesus, you can't. How else are we going to keep going? Well, he says, it's to my advantage that I go that the helper may come. Or put another way, it's better that I go so that the Spirit of God can actually live within you. It's not just about me walking beside you. It's about me living inside of you, bringing about your obedience. The Spirit of God is called a helper. Have you ever needed help before? Have you ever turned it down? I know I have. Man, rewind. Uh, derecho, okay? This is a sad story of my pride. All right. My family went one week without power. Southeast side, we were roughing it. Um, as you guys might remember, in Derecho, a lot of weird things were happening, right? Uh, talk about the shortage of electricity in general, but then when you start talking about generators... Like, have friends driving out to Wisconsin to pick up a generator because Menards is out. And you would think, oh, that's really sad, Jordan. You and your poor little family went without power for a week. That must have been so hard. Well, the problem is, it wasn't because I didn't have access to a generator, okay? We belong to a great church family. Many people who have said, hey, are you guys doing okay? You need a generator? And I'm like, 
no, we're all right. We weren't all right, okay? We were eating PB&Js for like every meal, which I selfishly kind of didn't mind. Uh, That's just the kid in me, though. You know, eating PB&Js and granola bars. If I wanted a, a breath of fresh air, like a fan or air conditioning, I would go somewhere else. If I wanted to charge my phone so that I could actually interact with the world, I had to go somewhere else, plug in my phone. And I finally get to the spot where I'm like, okay, sick of roughing it. It's been a long week. The only cold drink that I've had was Papa John's delivering me a two liter of soda. Sick of it. I need my refrigerator. Let's do this thing. So I say yes to a generator. Friend comes over, drops it off, and as I'm about to plug it in, what do you think happens? Power comes on. Yeah, it's tough. I'm like, okay, God, I'm learning. I'm a slow learner. My pride got in the way. I could have had power back in the second I accepted help. Now I actually have my power source. But the problem is, Veritas, much worse than a week without electricity when you could have had it, is trying to follow Jesus on your own strength. When you have access to the Spirit of God, who can actually equip you with everything you need to follow God to take matters into your own hands. This is where I'm prone to go astray. Okay? If you're anything like me, it's, it's easy to start with the gospel. It's easy to come here on a Sunday morning and say, yes, Jesus, I need your grace. It's been so evident over the last week. I am a sinner in need of a Savior, and praise be to God, you are that. But then what ends up happening is you walk out these doors, Monday comes back around, and rather than letting the Spirit of God well up within you, you say, okay, God, what you started in the Spirit, I'm going to continue in the flesh. Word of God teaches against that in the book of Galatians. It's to say to God, hey, thanks for saving me and all, but I think I got this now. And I'm telling you, it never works. It literally never works, and it's because God designed it this way. Did you know that you actually can't please God without his help? (laughs) We need God to even want God. Even in your best efforts, and I know there's a lot of driven, motivated, skillful people in this room, not to mention a lot of moral people in this room who do a lot of good things. You can't please God in your own strength. You need the spirit of God within you. And praise be to God, we have access. We, like the author of Hebrews, can stop in a moment and we can say, God, would you equip me with everything good? And that's not a a prayer for health, wealth, or prosperity. That's not a prayer that give me everything I want. Give me that new ATV. Give me that better job. No, to pray for everything good is to say, God, by your spirit, would you help me to do your will? (laughs) To do what's pleasing in your sight. To actually take this weak mess of a person and to make this a fragrant offering to our God. Would you do that? It's a little bit different than we pray. You know, to pray for a persecuted church who is prone to quit Jesus and to not say, God, alleviate them of their suffering. 
give them all of these physical, material blessings so that you can woo them back to yourself. No, that's not what the author does. He says, give them the strength that they need to persevere. Bite your spirit. Allow them to actually obey you, Jesus, and to not do it for their own good, but to do it for your glory. To Jesus Christ be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let it be so. And so we see faithfulness is a result of God saving us. And it's a result of God strengthening us. Our pathway to faithfulness is actually through God's strength within us by his spirit. So you might be asking the question, what role do I have to play then? Is this all passive? Do I just sit back and let God do all the work? Well, I'm glad you asked. We've got to keep reading. Verse 22. The author of Hebrews writes, I appeal to you, brothers. Bear with my word of exhortation. For I have written to you briefly. <laughs> it's kind of funny, isn't it? Like Hebrews, a brief word from a pastor. And I got to say here, this probably is a lot shorter than what he could have said to us, right? This is a brief writing. My, my initial thought was, okay, well, my application point is I'm going to preach 45 minutes then. If this is short, I got all the time in the world. But the reality is, you guys, we got to give Jake a little bit of a break, okay? We know he preaches 40 minutes plus, but it's short compared to what he could say to us, Right? You should see his note sheets. I'm like, that man could lay it on us. He does pretty good. 40 minutes. Salt students, you know I'm just as bad on Thursdays, so give me a break, all right? But I think the problem is, you guys, we actually struggle to pay attention when a sermon runs 10 minutes long. And that is an indicator of our heart posture. Okay? We are a people who spend, on average, five hours a day on our phone. And to think, God forbid, church go ten minutes long, and I miss two holes of the Masters on Sunday. That's tough. We've been trained by the world around us to just say, okay, come, let me get my fix, keep it short, keep it cute, And let me get on my way so that I can go on with the rest of my life. And the author here is saying, you need to pay careful attention. You need to pay careful attention to what I'm saying to you. Because to not pay careful attention to the word of God is to put yourself on the path of destruction. Some of your translations might actually use the word listen. Listen to what I have taught you. And I think what I've found out in the first five years of marriage, of many things, is there's a difference between hearing and listening. Some of you can look at your spouses. You know what I'm talking about, right? Ellie talks to me, and I'm totally hearing, but am I listening? Ooh, that's a tough question. You know, when your wife has to say, hey, are you listening to me? And I'm like, yes. What did I say? Something. (laughs) Right? Because to hear is passive intake of sound waves. To listen is to take something that you have heard and to give careful attention to it. 
to be thoughtful and considerate, to say, what did I just hear and what does that mean? And though I am here to say there's a difference between hearing and listening on a Sunday morning, I also want you to know there's a difference between hearing and listening when it comes to reading your Bible. And though it is an admirable thing to say, I want to do my Bible in a year plan, we must not reduce time in Scripture to simply checking it off the box. Let me plead with you, Veritas. Let me urge you to not be distracted by the things of this earth, but to sit at the feet of Jesus, the better portion, and to actually listen to what he's trying to speak to you. Do yourself a favor, spend $5, go buy a pen and a journal, and sit at Jesus' feet. And begin to actually write down and interact with what you're reading. Jesus, where are you in this text? How are you made beautiful? How do you fulfill what I never could? And what do you ask me to do to respond to you? To experience life to the full. To be near and intimate with you, Jesus. That's where there is fullness of joy. What do you have for me? Write it down. Write a prayer. Write a phrase to meditate upon. Memorize a verse or two. Share it with somebody in your community. And apply it. To begin to actually take what we know in here and to apply it here. To pay careful attention. That's what it looks like to be faithful. To say, I serve a God that speaks. That's good news. We serve a God that speaks. Will we listen? I think the hard thing is, as you guys know, you can pay careful attention and what you're going to end up doing is you're going to come home, you're going to lay your head on your pillow at night and you're going to say, God, give me a tour of my day. Show me how I've followed you. Show me where I've sinned. And you better believe, no matter how close you've paid attention, no matter how much you stop to pray that God would strengthen and equip you to do his will, to do that which is pleasing in his sight, you will lay your head on your pillow at night and you will still find sin. It is that whack-a-mole moment where it's like, wow, I totally tamed my tongue, but I see how in that situation there was still pride. And the problem is, you guys, our sin Satan wants to use to shame us. And for you to sit under and feel the weight of this pressure of striving. How could you? Do harder. Do more. Try harder. What's, what's wrong with you? But our sin is meant to be this constant reminder in our lives that we are in desperate need of a Savior. Just as much today as I was in 2013 when I first said yes to Jesus Christ. I'm still in need of grace. And that's exactly how the author of Hebrews ends this text. In verse 25, after a couple brief notes of greeting, he says, grace be with all of you. Grace be with all of you. You're not just saved by grace. You're sustained by grace. You need Jesus Today, just like you did when you first said yes to him, no matter how long ago that was, we're all in desperate need of grace.
So how do we begin to apply this message? How do we begin to step in to gospel-centered faithfulness? Two simple things, okay? New way to pray and a new way to obey. So step one, I want you to begin praying, verses 20 and 21. This week, to start your day every day by looking at verses 20 and 21 and saying, God, you are the God of peace. You're the God of peace. You brought back from the dead Jesus Christ. Jesus, you have saved my soul. By the blood of the eternal covenant, you died in my place so that I can know you, God, that I can have peace with you. You are the great shepherd of the sheep, and I am helpless. I need your wisdom. I need your protection. And God, with that, would you please equip me by your spirit to do your will, to do that which is pleasing in your sight through Jesus Christ, that he would be glorified, not me. Would you be willing to pray that every day this week? And don't be selfish, okay? I love that you want to pray it for you. Pray it for your family. Pray it for your connection group. Pray it for this church. The author of Hebrews is praying it for these people, right? God, give them eyes to see the gospel. Help them see how you're the good shepherd. Equip them to do that which is pleasing in your sight and to give you glory. Pray it for yourself and pray it for others. And though this is clearly a prayer for the church, for followers of Jesus, I think this is a noble thing to begin praying for unbelieving family members leading into the Easter holiday. I think of how many family members never step foot inside of a church aside from Christmas and Easter. And this upcoming Sunday, we will have the opportunity for many, many people to hear the good news of the gospel. So you can begin praying verses 20 and 21 for them. God, would they actually understand that you are a God of peace? But the only way they can be at peace with you is through Jesus, through his blood. Would you Give them ears to hear the gospel for the first time. By your spirit, would you help them become an obedient follower of you, Jesus, for their good and for your glory? Amen. It's a noble prayer. But I also want this text to inform the way that we obey Jesus so that it's not just our striving, but it's actually an act of submitting to his spirit within us. So I'm going to give you a simple tool Okay, I learned this about five years ago. If it's not new to you, consider it new. You're a sheep. You forgot. Okay, here's what's happening. I'm going to give you a quick walkthrough of it. Four steps. Step one, God's word tells me to. For example, God's word tells me to remove bitterness in my life. That's true. Okay, step two, I can't obey that. When I look at my own power to say, don't be bitter, all I can see is how this person has wronged me and how much I want to hold it against them. In my own power, I can't obey that. But praise be to God, step three, Jesus perfectly obeyed. Though Jesus could have been bitter, 
at his disciples, at you and me, who stabbed him in the back, put him on a cross, spit on his face, and let him die? What did he do? He joyfully embraced the cross to forgive you and me. He moved towards us in love. And therefore, because he has died, because he lives, because his spirit now lives in me, step four, I am now free to obey. The same spirit that allowed Jesus to embrace the cross for his enemies now lives in me and allows me to die to bitterness and to love this person that's hard to love. This is a new way to obey. And it's meant to set us free from this overwhelming weight of trying to follow Jesus in our own strength. And you guys, if we don't do this, if we miss the message of Hebrews, which is Jesus is better, therefore cling to him, we are at risk of not finishing. This first century Jewish Christian audience who was leaving Jesus behind were prone to become just like them, to put other things above Jesus. And we risk being a type of people that our friends look at and say, oh yeah, they used to love Jesus. They used to be really into following Jesus, but not now. In America, 5,000 churches a year are closing, over 100 a week. In Veritas, if we disregard the teaching of Hebrews, we are not beyond that. Hear me. To heed the message of Hebrews, to keep Jesus as center, to prioritize him above all else, this is crucial for us to finish. Whether that means Jesus coming back in glory or us dying and handing the baton to the next generation, we want to be a church that finishes for our own good and for God's glory. Amen? Pray with me.